welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And today we're going to discuss episode five of season four, titled Parasite Lost, which is a play on the title of the epic poem Paradise Lost. Yeah, so for those of you who might remember this from high school or college, and in case you don't, or you've never heard of it before, Paradise Lost was an epic poem written by John Milton, who was an English writer in the 1600s, and he created Paradise Lost after seeing the events of the English Civil War. And it's technically like Bible fan fiction (laughs) in a way, but it's actually a political story in which he's trying to depict the people who overthrew the English king as being morally in the right and using the imagery of the angels versus Satan and the other angels who were cast out of heaven as stand-ins for the king and his supporters. And using the story to justify the outcome of this political conflict in which they dethroned and subsequently executed the reigning king. (laughs) No better way to do that than to say that someone is equivalent to Satan. Yeah. So if you want to think about it in in a modern context, that was essentially like the one piece of not pop culture, but the one piece of literature or cultural reference that most people knew (laughs) throughout the Western world in that period of history. So it would have been something that everyone could connect the symbolism to fairly easily. But I thought it was interesting that it sort of turns from political rhetoric into this story, this Bible fanfic, as you called it. (laughs) Um, And again, back into political rhetoric, as we see it in the show, because we have this character of Agent Liberty, who is kind of in the same role as Satan and the king, in the sense that he and the people that he's trying to appeal to feel like angels cast out of heaven. You know, they feel replaced and um, displaced in the society. Yeah. And also that they feel like they deserve to be in that place, even though maybe some of the things that they're doing give the opposite impression. Mm -hmm. And they feel this way because of, obviously, as we see in the show, Aliens. So the title of this episode is a literary reference to Paradise Lost. And I thought that was kind of neat because we have another literary reference coming up in episode seven. And that episode's called Rather the Fallen Angel, which is a reference to the Mary Shelley novel Frankenstein, which is about how Victor Frankenstein gathers kind of an amalgamation of body parts and through science brings life to them and and turns it into a a being person, but then is so sort of horrified by this monster, as it's referred to, that he sort of abandons it. And then the monster is basically rejected by everyone who sets eyes on it throughout the novel. And then hatred grows within the monster and the monster takes vengeance upon Victor Frankenstein and basically kills his whole family. And you know, you're not really meant to feel that sorry for the monster because of just all the really horrible choices that the monster makes. Like the first person that the monster kills is a child and- Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the title, rather, The Fallen Angel, is a reference to the specific quote, I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel, whom thou strivest from joy for no misdeed. And that is the monster referencing Paradise Lost, which he used to learn how to read. Wow. Interesting choice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like super, super flowery, early modern English. Like there is some stuff written from the 1600s that's still pretty readable to a modern English speaker. This is not one of those things. Mm -hmm. So the monster within Frankenstein relates to Satan. A worrying idea. (laughs) (laughs) Satan, hashtag relatable. (laughs) And the monster, Satan, Lockwood, and Agent Liberty are all these characters that feel abandoned by society in one way or another and then make pretty terrible choices. And another thing that was interesting specifically in this episode in terms of parallels was that Agent Liberty was kind of in the role of Victor Frankenstein and how he created a monster in Agent Jensen. He bestowed powers upon him. And it went so well for everyone. (laughs) And then that ties into one of the biggest themes you think of in terms of Frankenstein, which is playing God and using your power with responsibility. And then that kind of ties into what we see with Lena and her conflict with her scientific advancements and what happens to them after she creates them. Exactly. And it it kind of ties back around thematically to the exchange that she had with Mercy in 402 when they were fighting in the lab using pieces of the Lexo suit, which again is a thing that enhances human abilities and maybe gives them powers that it's questionable whether they should have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
especially depending on how they're used. And we've already also seen this conflict with Lena being angry that people are taking things that she's created and repurpose them in bad ways. Yeah. And that kind of ties into that whole struggle of Satan and the fallen angels versus the non-fallen angels and like acquiring power and how they want to acquire the powers of aliens or be as powerful as them through the use of science. Yeah. And so in this episode, you have Agent Liberty specifically going out of his way to bestow Jensen with this power that is really not a good thing because it has this vicious kind of side effect to it. Mm -hmm. But specifically because he's trying essentially to like reclaim something that he thinks was his and has been lost or taken from him, even though that's not really the case. So that's where you have that connection to the title of power. Paradise Lost. And then you also have it in the very nice play on words with Parasite Lost because the episode specifically uses Parasite and then Jensen as this figure caught in the middle of this kind of ideological war with Agent Liberty on the one side and Alex as the figurehead for the DEO on the other. Mm -hmm. And then the word lost with the implication that there is some kind of struggle happening and somebody is winning or losing. And it turns out Parasite Lost. (laughs) Yes. So Jensen is very much caught in the middle of this power struggle, and power struggles are, of course, a big theme that we see in Paradise Lost. And all of the major characters have power struggles in this episode in one form or another. But what was interesting with Parasite specifically was that he had a very literal power struggles in the sense that Jensen, with the help of Parasite, was stealing the powers of any alien that he came across. And so that that's kind of Jensen's power for the episode. But then power seems to be the key to Parasite's demise in one form or another. It can either be destroyed with too much power, as we saw in season two with the plutonium, which was going to be Alex's initial plan of action. Or it can be destroyed, it seems, with too little power, sort of a rapid withdrawal Mm. of it, which ended up being how Jensen died. Well, sort of died. Yeah. And then that led to the conflict between the two different alien forms of power. And this concept of parasite sucking life energy and and stealing power is set up directly against the character of Amade, who has the power to heal. In a very similar way that we saw in the previous episode with Ahimsa and Jean, Mm non-violence essentially, versus the kind of mindless violence of the aliens who were being controlled. Yeah. Well, and the other thing about it that's kind of intriguing is that in both of these cases, you have Agent Liberty as as this villain character who says he stands for humans, but every time he's actually using aliens in juxtaposition to other aliens and forcing them to have to defend against each other. So, so in a way, Agent Liberty is the parasite. It's like he's stealing the power of the aliens. And then we have on the other end, obviously, Amade was this healer. But we saw Kara and Jean in this episode and in the arc of the season, they want to heal the human heart. An admirable and necessary goal. <laughs> yes. Which was a quote from Amade himself. His, his power didn't work on humans, so his goal was to heal the human heart. And thematically, that ties in, in the episode with Carr and John and, and their goals. And Carr at the end of the episode says that she wants to heal the divide in the city and ends up doing that with her articles. But that's sort of an interesting power struggle of the symbolic parasite in Agent Liberty versus the attempts to heal from our, our heroes. Yes. So we had this really big kind of obvious power conflict between kind of Agent Liberty and his use of Parasite and then um, Kara and Jean and their collaboration with Amade on the good side, if you will. But the entire episode was in pretty much every storyline centered around power and attempts at controlling either situations or people. So you have a lot of these conflicts coming in with, okay, who's already holding the power and who's coming and trying to take it and in in what way are they doing it? And so in most of these cases where we have a conflict over power, our established characters, the heroes that we know well from the previous seasons, are in professions or social situations that have an established series of rules to them. And you have these, the kind of more villain characters are coming in and disrupting order. They're disrupting kind of the natural flow of behavior. And so you see that specifically in kind of a journalistic conflict of the episode. You have on the one hand, the established media represented by Kara and James and then tangentially Lena as an owner of CatCo versus Ben Lockwood as this representation of 
of essentially like alt-right fringe conspiracy theory media. But the problem is, as James discovers, Lockwood has somehow managed to get himself a seat in the room Mm -hmm. with established members of the media, which means that he's changing, as Lena kind of realizes to her concern as well, changing the balance of what's considered normal and what's considered acceptable. And then they're all kind of trying to react to that. Mm -hmm. So Lockwood has like a table there, but he has a table at the back. Which he's very, very bothered by, Mm. obviously. Which he would be. And that kind of adds to like Lena's perception of like, oh, he's not gaining that much influence. He doesn't have status, so he's not worth taking seriously. Yes. um, He's still on the fringe because he's not mainstream in her view. But, you know, he has his foot in the door and he has a voice and, and the fact that he was in that room allowed him to frame the situation that James was in the way that he wanted to. But then I thought it was interesting in how they tied journalism back into the power conflict with the wording that Alex uses. Mm. In the scene where Alex tells Kara that, you know, she can't go out and fight Parasite because she could die and then Parasite would also have the powers of Supergirl. And, you know, Kara's disappointed but then she realizes that she has two ways to fight for justice and two forms of power, basically, which James also has, interestingly. But Alex calls it the power of the press, uh, which was a fun play on words. Yeah, so it's interesting because you have Alex kind of reaffirming Kara's belief in the power of an established means of fighting against kind of problematic ideals because Alex also has her own kind of twofold power struggle going on with the situation at the DEO. And so she has her own kind of personal difficulty, which is you have her as the commanding officer who has been there for for years, who knows all the people who work there, and who oversaw the transition of the agency from its kind of original negative purpose that Henshaw had used it for prior to what we knew in season one. And she's fully, she was fully on board with all the changes that Jean made and obviously supports them. And then you have Colonel Haley coming in as this outsider, which is usually for like an intelligence organization. When you have a complete outsider come in, it tends not to work very well because it demoralizes a lot of people because they change things in ways that cause problems. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) that's certainly what Colonel Haley seems to want to do. She starts off being really nice and Alex is a little unsettled by it. And then that changes. So they're feeling each other out and you're not quite sure which side the balance of of who's in control is going to fall on. And then you had a kind of an interesting observation that within this specific conflict between Alex and Colonel Haley, we also had a very literal mention of uh, giving power or taking power away from someone. Yeah. Alex explains to Colonel Haley that last time they defeated Parasite by overloading it with plutonium. And Haley then goes and, and works on acquiring some. And I thought it was an interesting way to demonstrate access to power, in this case, literal power, Um with uranium, which they end up acquiring. Well, literal and figurative, because yes. to be allowed to, to have access to unstable radioactive material requires having a lot of clout and a lot of influence in order to get that access. So yeah, so the fact that they are at that point working well together really benefits Alex and her goals. Yes. And then you also have this bigger power struggle between the DEO as it's been reformed as a legitimate law enforcement agency that deals directly with aliens versus Agent Liberty's growing mob, essentially, that thinks that it is also going to go out and enact its own form of of justice or law enforcement that is essentially just terrorizing people. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to probably see more of that in the next couple weeks, but the, the seeds of it are growing in this episode. Yes. So you have these two aliens, and on the one hand, you have Supergirl, who's been well established as a protector of the people because she had the backing of CatCo since she started. She works with an official government organization and collaborates with them. She works with regular law enforcement, police and the fire department. She interacts with people in like a positive way. She's a contributing member of society. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you have Jensen as he's infected by Parasite, who Agent Liberty says he's creating him to be kind of, you know, like that, a 
super soldier, essentially like the hero of the people, Mm -hmm. but he's just causing panic and murdering people. And he's doing it with no sense of of ethics whatsoever. Yeah. And then that's interesting because that struggle is a branch off of Children of Liberty versus the DEO and how we have Parasite in the Agent Liberty corner and Supergirl then working with the DEO. Yes. And then because the Agent Liberty and the Children of Liberty have caused all of this social upheaval and kind of upset the way that the rules are normally followed, we also find out that it's it's having a ripple effect on the alien community in that they can no longer trust some of these established pillars of society, like the police for protection, as one of the people who works with Amade says in this episode. So then what's the interesting thing there is then you see Jean kind of taking on this role of a disruptor because he finds out at the end of the episode from the bartender at the alien bar that he's starting to gain this reputation as the person to go to when you're afraid to go to the police. Mm-hmm. And then on a much lighter note, you had an observation about Brainy and Nia's interaction that we saw on the beginning of the episode. Yes. So this also was a situation in which there are typically rules and someone who is disrupting the natural order of things. So we had the very cute scene where they run into each other again when Kara throws her brunch. And Brainy kind of is oblivious to uh, the, the social rules of courting rituals and courting behavior. And he's talking to Nia and he says he did what she asked him to which was to find her and goes into more and more frighteningly explicit detail about all of the things that he found as someone who's sort of like a computer in ways and one of the funniest things about it was it also highlighted the the reactions that differed between the alien and the human characters in that scene because like Nia was kind of charmed and then Jean is amused Kara is just like she has this look on her face that's like wow relatable Um, like Mm -hmm. she's a little like secondhand embarrassed Mm. but then you have Alex and Lena who are like concerned that if they don't cut this off poor Nia's gonna be afraid that Brainy's gonna like find her in the middle of the night and cut her body into tiny pieces and like hide it somewhere that would Um, be what Alex and Lena think (laughs) that honestly would yeah those characters both as characters who are naturally suspicious of people and as grown women <laughs> also true, yes. <laughs> and so that just was a really striking contrast as well, because you have all of the, the characters who are used to being in situations where they don't know the rules and violating them. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of funny and they, they understand that it's not harmful, but the human characters all have this much stronger reaction of like, oh God, stop that. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of perceptions of people, that's another thing that is really important when you're having any kind of power struggle and trying to convince people to lend you a bit of their power or to have power over them. In this episode, we see with most of the main characters, them dealing with shifting perceptions of people, which also ties back into Paradise Lost thematically. So one of the most critical things about reading Paradise Lost is that the character of Satan is always in the wrong. You as the reader are taken on this journey where if you're not already clued into it at the start, you might not notice it, but it becomes more and more apparent as the poem progresses. And by the middle, it's very obvious that the Satan character is is insincere and doesn't actually want to like contribute positively and isn't actually trying to like come back to the good place and like get along with everybody again. Satan feels like he's been slighted and is kind of out for revenge. Mm-hmm. And so the, the thing with that particular story is that most people reading it will already know how it ends because Satan, most people know when you say <laughs> Satan, you mean like bad <laughs> or evil. Generally. Um, but the poem kind of wants to take you on this journey of showing you that evil in different contexts where like in one sense you immediately recognize it as bad, but then it's put in a different different way and at first you don't realize that's also as bad. Mm-hmm. And this episode played a lot on that idea of you gradually gain more information that changes your perception of what's happening. Which is kind of comparable to the Man of Steel episode in which we saw Ben Lockwood transform into Agent Liberty and if you know going in what he's going to be, it's it's pretty obvious when he starts to say certain concerning things. You can easily recognize them for what they are and it has that same sort of progression of 
escalation. But maybe if you didn't know, it was a surprise. So specifically, like if you go back and look at his behavior in those flashbacks in 403, after seeing where he ends up, there's hints that he was kind of always set to kind of go down that path. Mm-hmm. Much like we see in in some of the other reveals in this episode, for specifically with like Colonel Haley's prejudice that doesn't become apparent until the end. Mm-hmm. And that situation with Alex and, and Colonel Haley, that reveal ends up being powerful because of who Alex is as a character and the way that they set up the, the conflict at the start of the episode. Because you have Alex initially telling Kara that she's she's stressed about meeting this woman coming in because she's afraid of how she's going to react. And Alex, being Alex, says she's expecting the worst, especially after we've seen her in these past four episodes feeling a little bit insecure about how well she's doing at her job and aware that she's had all these kind of screw-ups and she's really feeling that emotional pressure. And she's understandably, you know, worried about what that's going to mean for her and for the leadership that she provides. On the defense of it. Exactly. So she's a little bit defensive. But then Colonel Haley comes in and initially is weirdly unsettlingly complimentary, <laughs> yeah. which Alex doesn't seem to know what to do with at first. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny watching those scenes after you know like where she ends up because it's really eerie at the same time. She's like, like it was there the whole time, but... but it's, Yeah, but until you know where it's going, you're, you're just like, there's a trick here, but I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh. Well, you know, it was funny because when we got to the end of that story, all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's... Because it does give you that unsettling feeling, but it, it reminded me specifically of having worked overseas because I would get these like weirdly backhanded compliments that were secretly insults to like all of American people. Hmm. Where it was like, oh, you're like not one of the stereotypical ones kind of thing. Yeah. And it was in a way very similar because Colonel Haley is playing up Alex and really complimenting her on lots of things that, yes, she's implementing them, but technically she's not the one who started making all of those changes. You know, Colonel Haley compliments her on speeding up deployment time. She mentions, you know, the, the, the smart use of like the shielding technology that Wynn developed specifically for Jean out of his request to move to non-lethal technology. Mm. And is always, you know, making it seem like it's Alex's accomplishment. It was Alex's idea. Oh, so great. And at first, you know, that seems like, okay, that's a good thing, right? But there's an undertone to it that Alex misses until it comes right out in the open because Alex is kind of distracted worrying about Kara and then trying to figure out what to do because she's concerned for Jensen as well. And so she doesn't catch the reaction that Colonel Haley has when she sees Jensen with the powers and is like, I didn't know you hired aliens. Meanwhile, she's telling Brainy to like go do all the things and clearly doesn't know he's an alien Hmm. uh so that'll be interesting yeah Uh, and then later alex kind of makes the comment that you know this isn't a battle supergirl can fight because car is her sister and (laughs) she cares about that but because that's what alex is reading the situation as she misses that colonel Haley's like please that supergirl can't be involved in this and that that it'll be like a human victory Hmm. And I thought this was interesting because Alex is being praised, but it's because the person who's praising her feels a certain way about aliens. And James is in that same situation where initially there was all this great press, like it was trending on Twitter after he went out as Guardian, despite being told he would be arrested if he did that again. And he talks about it himself, like how he's getting all of this positive feedback. But what's behind it is that they're trying to put humans first and Earth first and put him in opposition with the alien heroes of National City and and the world. Yeah, and so it's interesting that they're moving in that direction because you have James, who's so connected to both Kara as Supergirl and also Clark as Superman, very publicly even, and Alex, who as the head of the DEO, seems like she should be sympathetic to Colonel Haley's agenda, maybe, but definitely isn't. (laughs) Oh, Well, and it is interesting because going back to this talk about perceptions and the change of perceptions over the course of the episode, you clearly know that Colonel Haley is anticipating that Alex will be on her side because, you know, she's faced these several setbacks with people turning against the DEO out of, you know, dissatisfaction or fear or what have you. And she's had these issues with security breaches and these like alien attacks and whatnot. And just as she's stepping up and John steps out, 
Yeah, and the timing of it is really convenient because it's like, well, Jean's, Jean's gone now, so now maybe there's somebody for Colonel Haley who she can speak to freely about how she never liked the fact that he was there and that obviously he was only there by the conspiracy of the shapeshifter president. Yeah, and perhaps she expected Alex to kind of jump at that idea that she's surpassed her superior. Yes. And so the reveal is great in the one sense because Alex, as soon as she hears that, she's like, what? now uh, you know like yeah <laughs> with like murder eyes um, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's like i think maybe somebody else might have if they were in that position maybe not given a speech or, or found it to be more awkward she unfortunately because it's such a close emotional thing for her it's a great reaction for us as the audience because we know you know her sister is an alien and she literally asked jean to stand in for her father at her wedding so like <laughs> obviously she doesn't agree. I mean, this is someone who turned down Lillian Luther and Cadmus and actually was willing to like go to Cadmus with the aliens to be experimented on rather than <laughs> sell Jean out. Yeah. So like there was no way she'd ever be down with that. But unfortunately, as satisfying as it is in that moment, Alex also gives her hand away too soon. Mm -hmm. And then it puts her in an awkward position which we see in the conclusion of their conflict in this episode, which is Colonel Haley kind of forcing her to cede control because she's still Alex's boss and can make her life difficult mm -hmm. and potentially even remove her from the place of power that she is in and then gutting Alex's ability to make positive changes or to protect people from any negative repercussions of Colonel Haley's presence. Yes. And so it's interesting to have that in contrast with the way James reacted as one of the other human characters who was put in the middle of this kind of ideological conflict because Alex reacts very strongly, you know, renouncing it. And that's going to actually make her life more difficult in certain respects. And then James wavers on whether or not that's the right move and ultimately decides to wait. But then that pushes him into an equally difficult and uncomfortable position. So at the moment, it seems like there's no right answer. But the other part that was interesting about that was then when Alex kind of took the more emotional reaction there instead of trying to play it strategically and kind of waiting to feel Colonel Haley out a little more. All of the sudden, Haley's attitude changes immediately and she's like, well, by the way, you didn't follow my orders in resolving the Jensen conflict and you cannot do that again. And she makes this very big showy power play of like forcing Alex to salute her when it makes no sense to do it. Mm -hmm. just to prove that she can. And Alex is actually left in the losing position at the end of this conflict as it stands at the moment. But I wanted to bring up the reaction to how Alex handled the situation with Jensen because it was exactly, I think, what you said you were hoping to see with, with her. It was. Yes. And it pulled us back to go back to the, the paradise lost and the parasite lost concept to the main issue in the episode, which is that Jensen has become a representation of this battle for the hearts and minds of the people of National City between these two warring outlooks on aliens. Mm -hmm. And in this instance, Alex won. She, she did. And she won by, as you noted, giving a very Kara-like speech. Yes, put in an Alex way, which I'll talk about in a minute. But this ties interestingly into the idea of shifting perceptions of people and how Alex tries to appeal to what she initially saw in Jensen. She says that she still sees the agent that she wanted to mentor, that she was proud to call her colleague. She still sees a good man who's scared, but he's in there. Well, and she also makes him recognize that the ideology that Agent Liberty has been feeding him about him being a hero and being powerful was a lie. Speaking of shifting perceptions, because Alex points out to, to Jensen, you know, you're not helping anybody. They're scared. They're being hurt. And she also uses the words that are involved in Agent Liberty's rhetoric to bring Jensen back over to her side, which was nicely done. She specifically points out to him that he's being manipulated not just into hurting aliens, but also into hurting people. Because Alex understands now that that's the hook that's being used. Mm -hmm. And so she uses it really effectively to pull Jensen back to the to her side. Yeah. And this is something we talked about in the Men of Steel podcast episode, the idea of like knowing your ideological enemy and being able to use that knowledge to persuade them, to influence them in one way or another. And something that the show also used in season three, when Kara and Jean asked Marin for advice on how to combat Rain, and he ended up enlightening them and, and getting them to see 
that they had to play by her rules in a way in order to get her to do what they wanted. And they ended up pointing out that Ruby hadn't done, that she was an innocent, that she hadn't broken any rules, any of Rain's rules. Exactly. She hadn't violated Rain's code of justice. Yes. But it was, it's interesting that you say, because Carr is kind of the resident speech giver of the cast. So when the other characters give their kind of hope speeches and, and try to get through their people, you know, the first connection. They're you- usually talking to Kara. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, true. But you kind of usually associate that with Carr's influence in a way. Mm-hmm. But Alex gave a speech and, and it was a very Alex speech because she used this phrase that was very similar to something she said before. She said it to Kara in Triggers in season three when Kara was having panic attacks and feeling really low and, and had finally begun to express her fear of Psy yeah. and her perception of her inability to fight Psy. And she kind of asked, like, how am I supposed to basically fight her worst fears. Mm-hmm. And Alex said, by remembering that your fears don't define you. And in this episode, she says to Jensen, but don't let that fear define who you are. So I thought that was a nice kind of through line and connection to Alex's values and, and how Alex as a character connects to people. Yeah. And it played up again, the fact that she's generally very emotionally perceptive when it comes to other people. Mm. It's true. And it's funny that we have this sense of Alex kind of taking Kara's approach of reaching out to people and and trying to, you know, be more optimistic because then we have Kara having the opposite feeling over the course of this episode and expressing some self-doubt about whether or not she's taking the right approach. Yeah, contrastingly to Alex, who says that she usually expects the worst of people, we have Kara who expresses that she always tries to believe the best in people. But now she's coming to this realization that, that that's not always the best move trying to make people out to be the best versions of themselves because she publishes an article about the healer Amade and she says that she published this glowing article making him out to be a saint a portrait of him is immaculate which I thought was a fun reference to the biblical fan fiction (laughs) of Paradise Lost that is yes very true and she puts him on this pedestal and is kind of expressing how it's going not the way that she had planned yeah and it's it's a little unfortunate and this is where hopefully we'll see a little bit more of her growing as a journalist because as she says to Alex, she made a tactical error in her reporting in that she didn't do her due diligence of researching Amade and his background before she did the interview and wrote the piece. Because you see the scene of her with, with Jean after they've accidentally gone and kind of opened this can of worms discovering Amade's like secret love child. She searches his name in a really standard journalism database. And she's like, oh my God, there's so many articles of like previous interviews. And it's like, yeah, Kari, you probably should have read those before you came and asked him questions. So you also have this issue with, in terms of perception of Kara starting to recognize that if she wants to change other people's perceptions, she needs to kind of question her own perception of things a little bit more Hmm. so that she doesn't miss things and then have to kind of do damage control after the fact. Yeah. So it's another piece of that progressing storyline of Kara realizing that just kind of blindly having faith in people is not always the best move for creating like tangible good in the world. So Kara realizes that, you know, putting Amade on a pedestal sets him up for failure, basically. And it's interesting because as we talked about in the Faith episode, um, of the podcast, Kat, when she was writing articles about Supergirl, specifically avoided this and made sure to criticize Supergirl when she felt that she needed to be criticized because she knew that other people would tear her apart and that this gave her control of the narrative. So Kara's kind of learning some reporting lessons. And then it's, it's kind of funny that you bring up Kat because one of the other, I will say amusing, but it was also an intriguing reaction from Kara in this episode was her her kind of mild horror that people on internet comments are mean. <laughs> and it's just funny when you know that Kara, both as herself and as Supergirl, dealt with some very honest criticism from Kat that could sometimes be quite harsh. Although I guess maybe it wasn't like death threats. So <laughs> True. So, all right. In, in Kara's defense, the uh, the comments on the article were maybe a little bit harsher. Yeah. And on kind of a next level. And also, it's not necessarily that she just wasn't aware that people on the internet were this way, so much as it being associated specifically with something that she wrote and she had expected yeah. expected to garner positive reactions. Well, that's a really a valid point because it is different when it, when it comes at you because mm-hmm. 
And so this is something, if you've ever had to defend something you've published or talked about in the public, you have to deal with at some point in your life. Um, Well, and it was interesting that we had Kara kind of fixating on the negative comments and trying to figure out specifically how to address them, even though, yeah, they're on something that she wrote, but a lot of the commenters are probably not thinking about her personally in the context of making the comments. They're just like, oh, here's an article about a thing I don't like. Let me tell you how I don't like it in 20 hundred ways. And we see a similar fixation in James. In the reverse, though, he's getting all these positive comments on something that he doesn't want to be positive. So that's an interesting kind of contrast that you have going on within this episode as well. Mm. Sort of the the internet tying in. Oh, the internet. Yeah, there was some uh, meta stuff going on with the use of the internet in this episode. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how Kara as a character interacts with it more and more because she's never come off to me as somebody who's like on the internet a lot and spends a lot of time like really deep diving into it in any way. No, really the only character who ever seemed to be that way was Wynn. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can't picture her doing much more than like watching YouTube videos like with cats and... And sending really cute happy birthday messages to like everybody she knows on social media. <laughs> yes. Taking Instagram pictures of food. <laughs> yes. Um, food blogging. <laughs> I really just want the reveal eventually that like Supergirl has a food Instagram. Yes. <laughs> Not even Kara, like Supergirl specifically. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, cars never come off like an internet person just because she's so present all the time. Yeah. And like if she's going to do something like binge watch something, I think she would be happiest doing it with somebody else in person. Yes, exactly. She's the kind of person who really gets a lot of energy and, and positive vibes from physically being around people. So she really wouldn't be the kind of person who's spending all this time, you know, looking at things that are happening on message boards or mm-hmm. out of the sight of her senses. And I think that might contribute to it as well, because Kara can be so aware of so much that is happening physically in the world at all times that to add that extra component of constantly following like all this other stuff that would be like an overload yeah and she's also just not she doesn't seem to spend a lot of time just in her head yeah that's true for personality reasons and then also like trauma reasons yes exactly (laughs) and speaking of a Trauma, trauma and the way speaking of trauma and the way that people react to a negativity from the public we have Kara's good friend Lena funnily enough skeptic Lena seems to have a little bit more faith in in people than you might expect in a way <laughs> yes in terms of the people that are being hateful online she sort of dismisses them as trolls and dismisses them as well as Ben Lockwood as the fringe and she says toward the end of the episode I didn't realize how deep it went or how ugly it was. So in terms of shifting perceptions of of people, Lena has that journey. Very similar to Kara's. Yeah. And it was interesting because at first glance, it doesn't seem like Lena's reaction there fits with what we know of her as a character because she is so inherently suspicious of people's motives a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. But then when you think about it in the context of how she's had to explain Lex to herself, it does make more sense because she's always explained it as he had a mental break. You know, he's not acting like a sane person would in all of the kind of hate and the rhetoric that he's spewed when he went after Superman. Mm-hmm. And I think for her, the idea that that's kind of like a mainstream opinion now is a surprise. Yeah. In a way, you could rationalize that she has that view of, of maybe it being a mental health issue as opposed to an ideological virus in a way. Well, also, too, in the context of within her own family, it was like a specific interpersonal grudge. It wasn't, an, as you said, an ideology, mm-hmm. but it has since grown into that. So yeah. it will be especially interesting knowing that Lex Luthor is going to be coming to the show to see how many strings he may have been pulling or how he's been involved in this. Yeah. And it also makes sense for her as kind of a businesswoman to conceive of, you know, internet trolls, so to speak, as maybe even a positive thing. She says, all press is good press. Because in terms of like, if people are tweeting about you and you're a company, that means you're getting more exposure. And if people are talking about you, means more business. But that doesn't translate as well when we come to ideological issues. No, and that's where Lena's point that she tried to make to Kara in season two about knowing nothing about running a media empire becomes very obvious because she's coming at this with the logic of someone who works in the tech industry and thinking, well, 
whether there's a scandal or bad press or whatever, people will still be interested in my products because they're good products, which is fine when they're physical objects that work in a certain way all of the time. It's much trickier, though, when what you're selling is ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's where she and James, they they listen to each other well, but they actually sell each other (laughs) too hard on their points. And then they end up on opposite sides by the end. They both change their minds by the end of the episode and go in the other direction. Uh, When I say I like balance in a relationship, (laughs) I don't usually mean like going up and down both sides. It's like a seesaw or a swing. Um, Yeah, so they kind of go back and forth like a swing. And so initially, Lena's trying to, to reassure James because his initial gut reaction, particularly as a minority, is to do kind of what Alex did and flat out be like, absolutely not. I don't agree with this. I don't want to participate in this. And when he first runs into Ben Lockwood at this media ceremony, he flat out says, he's like, I will not let you lay this at my feet. You know, you're not going to make me your poster child for your fictional neo-Nazi movement. But Lena tries to reassure him and be like, well, but if these people have interest in Guardian and they know that you're a Guardian and they know that you run Catco, maybe that'll bring kind of like almost like a celebrity interest into the content at CADCO and we can use that to to influence the perceptions of these people and move them away from this extremism. And James is initially not sold on that, but by the end of the episode, he has reconsidered at the same time that Lena also reconsiders and is like, I think you're right. And then James is like, no, but I think you are. <laughs> and then they're arguing at each other. No, you're right. <laughs> it's kind of like one of those where it's like, I'm going to hang up first. No, you hang up first. Like, <laughs> Except about race. <laughs> this is what happens when we have romance in the time of interlocking with politics themes. How to live your life in a time of crisis, a guidebook by the Supergirl show. Romance in the time of crisis. Wait, there's a book with a very similar title. There's a book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I think it's called Love in the Time of Cholera, I think is the English title. <laughs> so okay. there we go. So in attempting to stand by his principles, James almost like inceptions himself and comes around to the opposite point of view. But part of the reason he changes his mind is because, again, kind of like Alex, in taking the hard line when he does, and this interestingly goes back to the point he tries to make to Nia in 402 about the issue of editorializing too soon. But in telling Lockwood that he absolutely isn't going along with his scheme, James actually, in a power play, again, gets trapped into having to play along, even though he doesn't want to. Because the conflict with Parasite breaks out while James is at a ceremony where he's supposed to be receiving an award for journalism in theory. But considering it came out of nowhere, I have a feeling that it was also secretly because some xenophobic people like Guardian. But this crisis breaks out and then you have Lockwood aptly seizing the moment in the way that a very slick kind of manipulative public speaker would and saying, well, are you going to stay here and collect a trophy or are you going to go out and help people like you say you want to do? And James's reaction is he clearly looks like he wants to punch him in the face because he knows he's caught. Because if he stays there, it looks bad. But if he goes, he knows he's going to be manipulated for use by extremist propaganda. So when we were kind of laying out the various characters and how they have shifting perceptions of people. We know that James starts off saying, you know, he will not lay this at my feet. He, he doesn't want to engage with Ben Lockwood. And he ends up changing his mind about that. What do you think the sort of internal reasoning is there with James? Well, he specifically says to Lena that something stuck with him in the interaction with Lockwood. And it could be him kind of replaying their conversation that we saw in the flashback in, in 403. And it could be that he's maybe thinking if he had paid attention to that complaint and that discontent when it was first a problem after the Daxamite invasion and done more to kind of acknowledge people's fear and their concern and, you know, as Kat would say, take control of that narrative and and frame it in in a way that has like a hopeful outlook. Maybe they could have avoided coming this far to this point. So in that sense, maybe he's thinking he has a little bit of responsibility for kind of how far out of control it has 
spiraled. But the other thing there is that he's he's been rethinking Lena's point about his power to persuade people due to, to his own influence and saying, okay, well, if Lockwood can manipulate me for his own kind of journalistic gain, I own a much bigger media empire and employ much better people. So why can't I do that in reverse and kind of like outpower him. So it's been a very long time since we've seen James out in the field as a reporter doing investigation, possibly longer than it's been since we've seen Kara. Yeah. So it'll be curious to see how he goes about it. But more importantly, it'll be interesting to see if this gives him more opportunities to have scenes with Jean, because Jean has already been doing a lot of this legwork. And in terms of going back to these issues of perception, he's been having a hard time convincing the rest of the super friends that the social atmosphere has changed and now that curtain has been drawn away and everyone else has kind of come around to seeing what Jean has been seeing since the first episode of the season. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if they maybe work on something together. That would be nice. But James isn't able to move as freely as Jean is. Infiltration into that group. The anonymity of it? Yeah. Yeah. Because he's this high profile public figure. True. So on the one hand you can have Jean kind of taking like how does the everyman get recruited into this ideology? But on the other hand, you also have James, because he is kind of a public figure, might be getting access to spaces that somebody at the bottom wouldn't Mm -hmm. in terms of like seeing how high up the corruption goes. So that'll be curious to see how that all plays out as far as untangling who Agent Liberty is and who the Children of Liberty are, especially since in this episode, Agent Liberty emphasizes repeatedly that who he is doesn't matter because what matters is that people believe in this extremist ideology and that it can live on even without him. He's essentially trying to avoid the trap of what happens in a lot of dictator-like or authoritarian power structures where once you have that very charismatic leader gone, the whole system falls apart because it was so built around the person. He's actually trying to do the opposite. He's trying to build an ideology that can exist regardless of who is the front man for it. Yeah. Which is much more dangerous. It is. And it's interesting that, you know, we have a group of people versus our group of heroes and the different levels that they all interact. Like James and Jean and how James can infiltrate at the top and Jean gets the little man and cars fighting the aliens in the street. And then we'll see how Nia and Brainy and Alex will eventually all fit into this. Lena as the sort of business connection there. Yeah, so I appreciate that the show has kind of course corrected in giving us this pulse of National City again, as much as it looks really bleak right now. Not always. No, not always. Especially in this episode, we saw instances of just positive social interactions with aliens, especially in the scene with the shapeshifter who was kind of putting on a little performance for people. And that one woman was like, I don't care what people say about shapeshifters. <laughs> I love them. Yeah, that was a nice kind of lighter. They've they've done pretty well so far at squeezing in lighter moments to give you mental space to breathe yeah. in these kind of very tension-heavy episodes. And then we also had, at the moment, what seemed like wins for our main alien characters as far as their interactions with people and their abilities to, to influence others. Yeah, in this episode we saw Kara and Jean sort of hitting their stride and, and how their roles are shaping up for the season. In a way, it feels like the season just started right now because all the pieces are in place. Yeah. And everything's in play that we'd expect it to be. And it was the first episode where they had their main character for the whole time. <laughs> also true. And both Carr and Jean are finding their roles in relation to their place in society and their connections with people. The people of National City. We see Jean find out sort of at the end of the episode when the bartender is talking to him he says that the, the word is that Jean is someone to go to when you're afraid to go to the police as an alien. Yeah. And that was a nice kind of touch to to the real life issues that specifically undocumented immigrants face in terms of whether or not they can trust law enforcement. And in terms of hitting his stride, Jean kind of has this cool moment after the bartender says that he puts his hat on and leans back and the music cues in and it's a very kind of cinematic Supergirl moment for the character. Yeah, and it's extra cool because this version of Jean that we're seeing now is apparently a lot closer to some of the things that he does in the comics as far as his interaction with the people in society. So Mm -hmm. it's fun that we're getting to explore this new side of him as he's kind of phased not phased because he can phase um, <laughs> uh-huh. as he's phased out of his first career on earth and is now kind of finding a new space it's like a private eye a private eye for aliens 
Mm-hmm. And you also brought up an interesting observation about Jean's reaction when he receives the compliment about his ability to kind of solve crimes and help people. Yeah, Jean says, I didn't so much as solve the crime as solve the people behind it, which is cool in the, in the sense of connecting him to the people and him following what his father had advised him to do and kind of reconnect with the people, but also in the sense of like ahimsa and nonviolence kind of the perfect role for him. Yeah, and it's also cool because it ties back to the main action conflict of the story about Parasite because in uh, Alex's final confrontation with Colonel Haley, she says that Jean taught her everything she knows and she resolved the Parasite conflict with minimal casualties because she saw the person behind it as well. It's something that the, the trio, the core trio, is quite skilled at. It is. They like people. <laughs> And speaking of the core trio, we have another member, obviously, our Supergirl, Kara. She hits her stride this season in sort of delivering on the promise that we got during Comic-Con that they're going to demonstrate that Kara as a reporter can be a hero as well. Kara finally has a kind of plan of action as a reporter. She's going to tell the stories of the aliens of National City in a series of articles titled Aliens of National City, and also being determined to follow through on painting them as people as opposed to painting them as just heroes. And that's kind of her tactic as a reporter in a way that she as a reporter will be interacting with the people of National City this season. And we also saw in this episode Kara as Supergirl interacting with individual citizens when she was lifting up people out of the dome for their safety. Yeah, and that was actually, glad she reminded me of that. Because within that, even those brief exchanges that she had to kind of go back to the earlier theme about power and control and social norms, Kara actually asks everybody if it's okay if she can rescue them before she does it, which was a nice little touch in keeping with that overall theme. Yeah. And in one of those interactions with the citizens, she came into contact with Elizabeth, Amade's daughter, who she had seen earlier on in the episode as Cara Danvers. And that was a nice way to kind of tie in that dual identity concept. So we may see her dual identity come up more throughout the season in relation to the people of National City and the various people that they come into contact with, as opposed to kind of just keeping it within that inner circle and like her interactions with Lena and previously with Kat. Mm, yeah. So that's be interesting. And then another thing in terms of the people of National City, I noticed was the little girl who was in the scene with the shapeshifter and Parasite. Parasite stole the shapeshifter's powers and then Mm -hmm. transformed into that little girl and ran away. She is in the promo for the next episode. Hmm. I actually didn't catch that when I saw the promo. So that's intriguing. Yeah. So we might end up seeing citizens of National City that kind of repeat and and be able to feel more connected to the people in that way, that they're like recognizable faces. Yeah. And that was something that like they did a little bit more in season one, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So in this episode, we saw the little girl. And she'll be back again. Yeah, she'll be back again. And it's interesting that it's a kid specifically, because this is something that I've been tracking. Mm -hmm. And that we've talked about before, how they use children in the show. And there were a lot of kids in this episode. I think they're kind of cognizant of the fact that kids are also watching it. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting, because we also saw Agent Liberty through Ben Lockwood playing upon the fear that he started in the previous episode and and really harping on the fact that, you know, aliens are coming for your children Mm -hmm. to stir up this kind of mob level paranoia among people. Yeah. And so it seems like they're they're definitely going to continue on that. And they're they're looking with the broader lens at how kind of an extremist ideology like that affects everyone in society, not just the people specifically who are creating it or who are actively following it. And it's interesting, too, though, that they keep playing up the presence of children and the impact that Agent Liberty's rhetoric is having on children. Because uh, one child we haven't seen since the 403 flashback is his son. Yeah. Um, And we found out at the end of this episode, speaking of shifts in perception and and what we know about characters, Ben Lockwood is living alone in an abandoned, destroyed factory, and his family is nowhere to be seen. So I'm assuming we'll eventually find out why. And in terms of that and looking at kind of the contrasting ideologies, in theory, Agent Liberty's trying to bring people together and he wants it to be about like a social movement instead of just him. But he's essentially working in isolation versus we had Kara and... And all of her people, as she describes them, who are very much together. And there's like an energy of feeling like they're not alone. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Ben Ben doesn't have his family, and that kind of contrasts with our space fam, um, who we see in the beginning of the episode, is all in one place, which is wild. It is, especially from a logistical standpoint, because scheduling all the actors to be in one place at the same time is often a challenge, which is why it almost never happens. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it was a, a welcome back party for Melissa. <laughs> it was a reward so that everyone could see each other. Yes. <laughs> However, like the fall from the Garden of Eden, the happiness just cannot last. Yes. Yeah, we will have to see how it goes, because as I kind of started pointing out last week, the narrative through these kind of new disruptive characters is trying to fragment the space family a little bit. And particularly, it's sort of driving a wedge between the human ally characters and the alien characters by putting James and Lena and Alex in these very uncomfortable positions where they have to try to make the right choices while being kind of caught in a trap by this opposing ideology that's infiltrating all of their places of work and what they do. And at the moment, at least by the end of this episode, all of them pretty much end up in places where they're either losing or they haven't gained any ground against this rising tide of xenophobia and and extremism. Mm -hmm. That said, it is unlikely that that will be the prevailing outcome of this season. Given Supergirl as a show. (laughs) Because Supergirl as a show is about a character who believes in in hope and, and help and compassion. And stronger together. Yes, and whose outlook on life is that we are stronger through our bonds to other people. Mm-hmm. So it is very likely that at some point everybody will recognize that they are being played and they'll either collaborate with each other or there'll be harder lines in the sand drawn and they'll have to choose, which we had also brought up previously about how Lena said that she doesn't like to take a stand, but the season is definitely pushing everybody to a point yeah. where they're going to have to. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if the sort of low point of the season will see our characters all in opposition with each other. Yeah, that ooh, that would be really interesting. Mm. <laughs> There's so many ways that could happen. Well, and on a related note, because we've kind of been talking about how it seems like they're teasing this idea of either Kara as Kara, finding it harder and harder to keep quiet about the fact that this issue with aliens is very personal to her, especially in light of Nia's talk about, you know, needing to be vocal about representing things and showing what you stand for and the two of them working together but also because we've already had this incident with Agent Liberty and his associates doxing the president or the former president Mm -hmm. and so you know how long is it going to take before somebody starts questioning that about Supergirl or Superman or all of the above and putting Kara like in season one when Max Lord did that in a situation where somebody finds that out. Yeah. We'll see. I, I do hope they do something with it. I hope so. It would be sort of a missed opportunity if they didn't address the identity issue in this way. It would. And just a, another quick note before we go. One of the other intriguing things about this episode was that the writing credits went to two brand new writers who haven't written for the show before the season. So that said, they did a great job of yeah. matching the tone and also the nuance of some of the different subtextual like literary references and the political stuff was really well thought out. So... Kudos. And the character stuff was solid. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. They like the stuff with Carr and Alex and their dynamic and so next week we have the episode called Call to Action and Carr's gonna have a some sort of debate with Ben Lockwood. That'll be interesting. Yeah, especially since you made the point in one of our previous podcast episodes about how they're kind of being set up as foil characters who are in their own way very persuasive and charismatic. So yeah. Kara at the moment feels like she's had a victory because she's writing these kind of persuasive essays profiling aliens, but she hasn't had to go head to head yet. Yeah. with someone who totally disagrees with her. And as we saw, even in the her minor disagreements with Snapper in season two, she can sometimes struggle to uh, yeah. respond effectively. I feel like things are so obvious to her and like yeah. she believes them so fully that it's hard for her to convince people in a like logical way as opposed to like, this is right and this is wrong. <laughs> well, also too, and this is where they're similar, but because Lockwood has some age and experience on her, he's able to counterbalance it more effectively is they both believe so strongly in the things that they believe in that trying to figure out the alternative point of view to argue against it can sometimes be difficult because you have to be able to like flip your brain a little bit yeah and 
Kara hasn't started really trying to do that yet. Kara is when she connects to people and persuades people. It's usually a very like pathos, emotional connection. Yeah. And it's very personalized. Yeah, as opposed to maybe kind of breaking down the logic of it. Yes. <laughs> and next week, it's also going to be a Thanksgiving episode. So prayers for the appearance of Eliza. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. A prayers for Space Mom and her love via pie, especially since <laughs> Kara was so devastated after uh, damaging that pie stand in that previous yeah. episode. But also, we didn't get a Thanksgiving episode last year, and it was kind of unfortunate because of all the holidays that they could choose to feature, it's really the one that best, in some ways, en- encapsulates the tone of the show because it's so about family and things that Kara stands for, like be grateful for what you have. True. But last season was also heavy on the um, like religious. Yeah, which is why they... Iconography. But it's especially fitting because Thanksgiving is a kind of historical holiday. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to this Thanksgiving episode, and I'm also curious to see if it's going to uh, play up some of the the tension of Thanksgiving that can emerge sometimes, like we saw mm-hmm. in season one, but also I think a way that is, is relatable to a lot of people in the current political climate where your, your family holidays are a little fraught with tension because you never know what everybody's going to say when you put your whole family together. Mm-hmm. So that'll be curious. And I wonder if we'll get any more introductions of uh, new characters since it will be a holiday where we bring family in yeah so we'll see so that wraps up this episode of supergirl's attic if you would like to send us comments or questions you can head on over to our twitter tumblr or instagram at supergirl's attic we'll see you next week thanks for listening